Let's pray together real quick. Father God, we thank you that you lead us. That if we are in Christ, that despite the toils, despite the hardships, despite the difficulty, despite the struggle, we are not alone. That we have communion with you. And so God, I pray that we would uh, take delight in that. That we would be content in our circumstances because we know that you have planned this for a purpose. For your glory being shown in the midst of a world of unbelief. That you shine light into darkness. And how much brighter that light shines, the darker the world is. So God, I pray that we would uh, open our minds and our hearts to your word today. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking through us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to paint you a picture. Bam, look at that, I'm pretty good, right? Uh, this is a picture of the transfiguration. Uh, you know, I tried to get the, the mountains right, but in order to show the scene, you know, I, I just couldn't quite get it in there. There's two scenes here, and uh, actually I didn't paint that. You know, you see right there, Raphael painted that. Uh, Raphael, not the Ninja Turtle, but the, the Italian Renaissance painter, for all of you who may or may not be aware of that. Um, this was his greatest work. In fact, he... He died before he was able to complete this work. It was actually finished. What little work that needed to be touched, um, he uh, was finished by one of his students. Uh, he considered this his magnum opus, his, his greatest event. I wish you could see it better um, because it tells a tremendous story. You know, I don't know much about art. Uh, you know, I'm the first one to confess that, but I love this painting. I absolutely love it. Um, it's one of those few classic works that really, I think, tells better than any other picture the, the story of the Transfiguration. Now, if you look at other classic works that were done on the Transfiguration, they've all been pretty flat. They've all been pretty plain. I mean, there's Jesus. He's kind of, he's kind of like up there, kind of levitating. He's got white clothes on. Moses and Elijah are with him. And there's three disciples on the ground, and that's it. But it doesn't really dramatically tell the story in the way that Raphael is able to do that. Raphael, you see, he uses these, this, these huge contrasts with lighting and with color and with lines, with facial expressions, with body language to tell a vivid and powerful story. At the top, you see Jesus, heavenly light radiating around him. And on, the, uh, and on his sides, either side, you, you see Moses and Elijah. Directly below them, on the left, you see, you see James, and he's burying his face in fear. Peter is... is trying to peek up through his fingers to see Jesus. And, and you've got John over here on the right, and he's just more gracefully kind of shielding his eyes from the glory that he's beholding. These two guys kneeling on the left over here, I don't know if you can kind of see them. Uh, well, they're, they're two Catholic saints, Felicimus and Agapetus. We, we have to remember that Raphael was a Roman Catholic, you know, that he died in 1520. This is right after the Reformation was just getting started. It was less than three years earlier that, that Martin Luther actually nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door at Wittenberg. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the influence. The reason why they're in that painting is because they share August 6th as a feast day in commemoration of them alongside the Transfiguration. So that's why they're there. Don't need to make much more of it than that. But... You know, it, you've got this heavenly picture up above, and again, the lighting is not right, so you can't fully get it. I mean, this is bright white, and with these, these, this blue that's just kind of radiating all out around it. And then down below, you have this picture of chaos. It's striking, the contrast between the two. The disciples over here on the left, the nine, they're in a panic. All right? They're unable to help this boy with the unclean spirit. You can see him in the lower the lower right there with his hand raised and one down kind of like falling backward. Um, and the crowd is pleading. Some are jeering. Two of his disciples point upward to Jesus as if to say, you know, he's gone. We don't know where he is. Please just wait and he'll come back and, and, and he'll make things right. One down here in the bottom is looking at a book which is meant to represent the wisdom of the world, of incantations, of, of ritual practice. Um, but the look of confusion on his face tells us that, that those are insufficient to really meet the needs. They, they, they cannot do what they are promised to do. These disciples are in a state of helplessness and chaos. 
Their hope must come from above. It's, a, it's really it's amazing image. It's, here we see in vivid detail the contrast between light and darkness, between purity and sin, between order and anarchy, between glory and misery. No other portrait of the transfiguration pictures it this way, simultaneously telling these two stories, putting them together, and depicting them as one. Uh, the German artist Goethe commented on this contrast. He said the two are one. Below there is suffering and need, above effective power and aid, each bearing on the other, both interacting with one another. On the simplest level, the painting can be interpreted as depicting a dichotomy, the redemptive power of Christ as symbolized by the purity and the symmetry of the top half of the painting, contrasted with the flaws of man as symbolized by the dark, chaotic scenes in the bottom half of the painting. Another art critic Henry Turner Bailey wrote in his book, Twelve Great Paintings, The idea is this, the interpenetration of the visible and the invisible, the perpetual coexistence of the puzzle of human experience with the ecstasy of divine communion. How else could Raphael express better the perplexity, the anguish, and the helplessness of ignorant, sinful humanity than to use lines which cross one another roughly in harsh and conflicting colors? How else could he have secured the proper introduction to the scene above? Only by contrast could the glory of the transfiguration have been revealed. He said, to me, this picture reflects the whole of life, life as it is today. The mystery of evil, the tragedy of ignorance, the impotence of the will, and along with all that, the balm of beauty, the sweetness of sympathy and friendship, and the ever-present possibility of communion with God. He's right, you know. He, he hits it on the head. This picture is an image of the whole of life. This is life as we see it today. You know, last week we talked about the top half of the image. And I told you that glory and suffering are not incompatible. Today we are going to examine the bottom half of this picture. We're going to be led down the mountain to see what the Christian life looks like in the real world. You see, we often want to think that the glory of the Christian life is somehow occurs up on the mountain. It occurs in those moments where we are experiencing God emotionally or or. Um, or just spiritually in, in, in unique ways. Other time we think that it's only when we are fully assured of our faith or that we have separated ourselves from the unbelief, from the chaos, from the hardship of the world. When we are cut off from all those, are we truly experiencing the glory of God? And so we put up this false image of perfection and we become plastic Christians. We're not real with one another. We try to present ourselves in light of glory and ignore the context that we live in. Or we simply rely on ourselves and our own abilities to live out the faith. But the Christian life is not gauged by mountaintop experiences or by a false sense of holiness and separation from the world. And nor is it lived out by our own strength or religious practices. The Christian life is lived by faith in the midst of the real world. And faith is humble dependence on Christ. So that's where we're going. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. That's page 844, 845 in the Bibles there in the chairs. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. And when they, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And when it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. 
And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood, as it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help him. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Today we are going to look at the Christian life. The Christian life as it exists in the real world. And the first thing that we see from this passage is that the Christian life exists in the valley, not on the mountain. This is quite a different scene than we saw last week, the one on the mountain. At some point, while Jesus was away, this great crowd, they, they begin to form at the foot of the mountain where the other nine disciples are. Maybe they're the crowd from chapter 8, verse 34. Uh, but, but in any case, they've grown larger. Where it was just a crowd back there, now it's this great throng. It's this great multitude. They've all come together. They want to see. They want to hear. They want to find out what's going on. Not because they want to follow Jesus or believe in Jesus, but because they want to be amused. Perhaps they heard that the the scribes had showed up and they were on their way to meet up with Jesus' disciples to pick a fight. And like that crowd that always follows the contender down to the playground or to to the bike racks after school, there they are. They're coming around, you know, they're following to see what's going to happen. Or maybe they had heard stories of how Jesus had cast out many demons. And here's this father, this desperate father with this boy, with this demon. And, and he, he just wants to, they just want to go and they want to see Jesus perform a miracle. They want to be entertained. They want to be amused. But regardless, they come around. They, they flock to see what's going to happen. Jesus, he walks from the quiet, reverent solitude of his pre-existent glory down the mountain. And he meets up with this frenzy of just arguing and confusion and desperation and doubt. I mean, try to imagine what this is like, right? He's he's just had this amazing experience up on the mountain where where you've seen the the glory that he has beheld for all eternity with the Father. He kind of comes back to normal. They're heading down the mountain. And then from this pristine, this, this, this quiet, this reverent moment into mass chaos where this huge crowd is gathered together. Imagine all the noise. Imagine all the commotion. Imagine all the confusion and, and all the taunts and, and that are being thrown around. Some of the disciples are arguing with the scribes. Others are trying to explain why it is that they couldn't help this boy. They're trying to justify themselves. Others are wondering where Jesus was and when he'd just show back up to clean up this mess that they, they started. And that's all together with this barrage of laughter and taunts and boos and complaints and petitions that pelt them from every side by this crowd. And all they're trying to do is calm down this father, this desperate father and, and his convulsing son. I mean, imagine the chaos that this would have been. Right? This would have been nuts. It's a mess of human sinfulness. But as soon as Jesus, as they see Jesus in verse 15, it says that everyone was greatly amazed and they ran up to greet and they greeted him. Now, there's this immediate sense of relief as soon as Jesus shows up on the scene. There's this great calm. His, his presence calms storms, both physical and social, even spiritual. Now, I don't think that they were greatly amazed because Jesus was still glowing, right? Like he, he's, he came down the mountain still in his preexistent glory. Because we have to remember how much it freaked out the three disciples to see him that way, right? We just saw that image of what it looked like. They were terrified. So I don't imagine that if, if these guys who had walked with Jesus for, for over a year by this point were, were freaked out by what they saw, that the crowd would just come running up there. I think that they were amazed for a different reason. I think they were amazed because they recognized Jesus' authority. They recognized His greatness. They recognized His superiority. 
Here's one. He, he's greater than his disciples. Jesus is greater than the scribes. And where they may have trusted in the scribes at that point, here comes along Jesus, and he's far better. He has far more authority. He's far greater. So they just want to turn to him and acknowledge him. They, they don't really know who he is at this point. They, they're not willing to follow him, but they can recognize at some point his greatness and his authority. And so they run to him and they eagerly greet him. Undeterred by this crowd, Jesus makes his way straight for these religious leaders. I love this. In verse 16, he just goes right to him and he says, what are you arguing with them about? Right? He's going straight to these religious leaders who are arguing with his disciples. He said, listen, your fight is not with them. Your fight is with me. What are you arguing with them about? You argue with me. Your, your beef is right here. You need to come to me. Right? I just love the way he gets in there and he's like, he's not willing to just kind of like ignore the issue. He goes straight for it. He deals with it. He confronts it head on. He's not going to let these false teachers rule the day. He's going to deal with them. He's going after it. But, but I also love it because it shows us something that when arguments arise about faith and practice, we have to remember that Jesus is the true authority. Okay? He said, your beef is with me. It's not with them. When we get into issues, you know, when we have these dialogues or these debates with unbelievers or, or believers about different, different you know, disagreements between what something says, the ultimate authority that we have is the Word of God. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Their, their argument, their, their beef is not with you. Their beef is with Jesus. The problem exists with how they're viewing Jesus. Either you're viewing it rightly or you're viewing it wrongly, but it comes back to Him and who He is. He is the authority. Not methodology, not tradition, not personal preference, not personal experience. None of that. We have to go back to Him and wrestle with Him. What does He say? How has He designed it? Right? He's the authority. But before he even gets a chance to lay the smack down on these religious leaders, a man steps forward out of the crowd. And Jesus can tell right away that this man is desperate. He's at the end of his rope. He's about to give up hope. And he says to Jesus, Teacher, I, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. From childhood, this man's son had been enslaved by a mute demon that was bent on destroying him. Jesus listens as this discouraged father tells us of the miserable condition of his son. I mean, you can sense the heartbreak and the agony that this man was experiencing. You can just get an idea of the of the difficulty, of the pain that this family would have had to endure. And he's tried everything. And he's hopeless. I mean, our hearts should bleed for this man, for the situation that he's in. And then you turn and you look at the disciples. And here, they had not been able to... Here, they, they, they've been able to cast out demons before, in Jesus' name. They've done it before, but this time they couldn't. They failed. They're helpless. They're hanging their heads because they're, they're, they're upset because they failed. And they don't know what's going on. They could do nothing for this man and his son. I mean, this is a sad state of affairs that we're looking at right here in these first few passages, these first few verses of our passage, okay? What we're seeing here is the amusement, the triviality, and the taunts of the crowd. We're seeing the anger and the arguments of these religious leaders seeing desperation, pain, and anguish of this man and his son to the disappointment and failure of his disciples. I mean, this is a picture of the world we live in. This is a glimpse of the chaos that comes from a fallen, sinful humanity. This is our world. This could be us. Do you get that? I want you to look around. I'm not being hypothetical. I really want you to look around. I want you to look at the people sitting across from you. I want to see the, the people sitting next to you, in front of you, and behind you. All right? You see them? Do you realize that they too experience pain and hurt and hardship and heartbreak and loss and suffering? Do you realize that all of that is going on in their lives right now? Right now at this moment? Do you know that? I mean, here, in just this room, we have people who have suffered from divorce and abandonment. We have 
There are those here who have been mocked and lamented and taunted maybe their entire lives. There are those who feel shame or disappointment over the ways that they have failed seemingly over and over and over again and they can't let it go. There are mourners who have suffered loss, great loss. There are angry abusers. There are those who have been abused. There are drunkards and drug users. There's sexually immoral, the pervert, the proud, the insecure, the despairing, the depressed, those who feel hopeless in their shame. There are those who are searching desperately for answers. All right here. And compared to other segments of society, we're doing pretty good. We, for the most part, have it together. And this is the condition that we live in. Because we can't ignore that. What we, but what we so often want to do when we come to church is just kind of tune all that out. Right? We want to come and we want to forget all our problems. We want to forget all our hardships. We want to forget all our sufferings. We just want to come and we want to bask in that glory. We want to have that mountaintop experience. We just want to shut it all off. We want to close our eyes and draw a circle around ourselves and say, it's just me and Jesus right now. Right? I just want to escape that. that I just want to escape all those problems that, that plague me every other moment of every other day. And just kind of like have this little, this little away time, this little retreat. And so we come here and we, we're trying to do that, right? But when we do that, you know what else we're doing? We're turning it off towards other people. Not only are we trying to ignore our problems, but we're certainly trying to ignore the problems of the people sitting next to us. I'm like, I've got enough problems on my own. I don't need to handle yours. Please. Let's just shut it off. Let's, let's pretend that everything's okay. And let's just worship Jesus. Right? We'll just sing some songs. We'll listen to a sermon. We'll read some word scripture together. And then we'll get out of here. Right? And we won't interact. We won't deal with what's really going on in people's lives. We'll just ignore everything that's happening and just kind of present this plastic, fake, I don't know. At that point, we're just pretending to worship, guys. As if God is not there in your pain too. As if His glory is not somehow present also in your suffering. Because it is. We can't just pretend to stay up on the mountain and and bask in some fake sense of glory. We need to be aware of the pain and embrace it and embrace it in the lives of other people as well. I mean, think about it. What would have happened if Jesus just stayed up on that mountain? He had every right to, didn't he? He's a pre-existent glory revealed I mean this is Jesus you know he's he's an owe us anything right we've all rejected and rebelled against him we we're owed nothing he could have just stayed up there he could have just forgot about it said hey this is a sweet moment I am going to let them pitch their tents here and we're just going to hang out here and forget everything that happened down below but imagine what would have happened down below if he stayed up the world would be mass chaos right It'd just be a perpetual mess. We all we would have is verses fourteen through eighteen. I mean, praise God that Jesus came down from the mountain. And if Jesus came down, took that glory into suffering, into chaos, into hardship, then we should do the same. He's calling us to do that very thing. And when we gather, it's this is not a time about individuals forgetting their life to create some mountaintop experience. That's not why we gather. We gather together in one voice to proclaim hope in the midst of this desperate world. Proclaim it to ourselves and to proclaim it to others. Guys, the reason why we sing is so that we can, in one voice, proclaim the truth about Christ to one another. You think about that. We don't do it just because we like music. We don't do it just so we can just kind of tune out and not think about what we're singing. This is an opportunity for you to proclaim to the person next to you, Jesus is alive. Jesus has died for your problems. Jesus is there with you. Praise Him. Now we gather to come down from the mountain to bring hope to a desperate world. 
We gather as hurting people to proclaim the gospel to hurting people in the valley of despair. That is what we are called to do. That has always been God's intention. Though God has always existed in perfect, glorious fellowship in the Trinity. Like God, wasn't need, God didn't need to create you. I hope you understand that. God didn't need you. He wasn't lacking anything. Perfect fellowship, perfect love, perfect community, perfect glory before He ever created anything. But yet He creates it so that we could enjoy His glory. But the problem is we wanted to take that for ourselves. We saw that. We became jealous of God. We wanted that glory for ourselves. So we rebelled against Him. We tried to take it for ourselves. We tried to live as if this is my world and I'm God. And I don't need Him. I want to be king over my life. And we brought chaos into His order. And yet He came down to us. Jesus made a way for us. This is amazing. God revealed Himself to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and He called them, each of them, to, in their own way to await His glory as they lived and walked in a world of suffering. Right? You got God called Moses up the mountain, yes, but He returned to rampant idolatry and rebellion. Elijah left Mount Horeb only to combat the paganism of Ahab and Jezebel. Jesus not only came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, but He left His heavenly glory. Guys, He he left His perfect relationship with God in the Trinity and took on flesh. And He bore our shame on the cross. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a humiliating, sacrificing, scandalous cross. He died to bring light to darkness, entering into a world of madness in order to bring uh, order in from chaos. This is why He came. This is what He is here to do. And He does that by coming down from the mountain. And He calls us to do the same. Guys, when we recognize what Jesus has done, yeah, that's a mountaintop experience and that's fabulous. We need to bask in that glory. But we take it to the world around us. Friends, for us, the journey upward to God is a journey outward into the world. A world of anarchy. A world of rebellion. A world of failure and despair and suffering. And we can't get upward if we're not going outward. If we try to get there by turning inward, we're just living like the world. We just call it something else. Because it seems to be more pious on the outside. So the Christian life doesn't exist on the mountain, but in the valley. Second, it exists in the midst of unbelief, fallenness, and difficulty. Jesus looks around and he sees this curious and watchful crowd. He sees these argumentative and hard-hearted scribes. He sees this despairing father. And he sees his disappointed and weary disciples. But his response is a little bit surprising. In verse 19 he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus says to everyone, including his disciples, everyone standing there, all right, he says, You are an unbelieving lot. You are a faithless, lost people. I don't have long to be with you. I don't have long for you to see who I truly am. I don't have much time to soften your hard hearts. You don't have long. I don't have long to help you to believe. Time is very short. It's short for them and it's short for us. Life is but a vapor. I know that most of you guys are young and you think you got your whole lives ahead of you and you live as if you're invincible. But let me tell you something. One malignant cell One microscopic virus, one wrong turn, and that is all over. It is done. You are fragile. You have but a moment to get this. We do not have long to believe. But the question that he asked next really struck me. He said, how long am I to bear with you? How long am I to endure you? How long am I going to have to put up with you? This is Jesus saying this. 
Now we have to keep in mind, this is Jesus that said this, right? The most patient, the most sacrificial, the most selfless man that ever walked the face of the earth said this, okay? So let's keep that in mind. But let's, never, let's not forget that Jesus still said it, and he still meant it. The truth is, he, he does bear with it. He bears it with it all the way to the cross. But that doesn't mean it doesn't grieve him. That doesn't mean that your sin doesn't really plague him. And that he has to bear with it. Because this is... Our unbelief wearies him. It grieves him. And he's continually surprised by our unbelief. Don't, don't ignore that. Okay? We often make light of our sin like it's no big deal. Jesus died for that. You think it still doesn't grieve him? We don't live like that. He was grieved by the neighbors, his neighbors and friends in Nazareth. He's also grieved by the persistent hard-heartedness of his disciples. I mean, we've seen that in chapter 6 already. We've seen it twice in chapter 8. Even in Peter, James, and John as they were coming down the mountain in verse 10. You could still see their unbelief there. But despite Jesus' anguish over their unbelief, he still endures. That's, it's unbelievable to me. So in verse 20, they bring the boy to him. And immediately this mute spirit sees Jesus and he begins convulsing. He falls on the ground. He's rolling about, foaming at the mouth. Though this demon cannot speak, this demon recognizes who Jesus is. He knows his true identity. What we've seen so far in Mark, time after time after time after time, is that both heaven and hell declare who Jesus is. They declare his true identity, that this is the Christ the Son of God. We saw that in Jesus' baptism. We saw that last week in His transfiguration when God spoke from the heavens declaring, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. But we've also seen it come from the demons from hell. In chapter 1, in chapter 3, in chapter 5, when they all noticed that we know who You are, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Both heaven and hell declare Jesus' true identity. And though the people don't recognize it yet, His disciples don't recognize it yet, there is that testimony. They know who He is. And though this demon cannot speak, His actions indicate that He knows who Jesus is. Jesus then asks how long the boy has been like this. And the Father responds in verses 21-22, Ever since he was a child, this demon has tried to destroy him by casting him into fire, casting him into water. Now imagine for a moment the scars that these, that this boy, that this man, that his family would have. I mean, not just emotional scars, I mean literal scars. If this demon is trying to cast him into the fire, how many times did this man rush into the flames to try to save his son? How many burns did he have on his body marking his love for his son? How many times did he have to dive in after his boy into the water, almost drowning, trying to save and trying to pull him out of that water? Think about all the stress and the anxiety that they would have had to do. Just wondering, okay, when's he going to go? When's he going to do it again? When is it going to happen? I don't really know. Always on guard. Always watching. Always trying to protect. And being ostracized in the process by the community around him. Because this, this boy can't speak. And, they, and the world at that time said, if you can't speak, then you're insane. Because we have no idea of knowing what you know and what you understand. You are clinically insane. And so they are made outcasts, even in the community, as he is expressing his love over and over and over for his son by willing to sacrifice himself, by putting himself in harm's way, by continuing to to bear the reproach that his son brought on him. He he continued to endure. And he's struggling, guys. He is... He's weary. He's on the verge of giving up all hope. And he says in verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. You can tell by his response that he doesn't really believe that Jesus is able. He's living on a prayer. He said, if you can do anything, I'm looking for a miracle. I need something. I've got nothing left. I'm at the end of it. Part of his response is due to the fact that Jesus' disciples had failed miserably. 
to cast out this demon. And he might have been thinking to himself, you know what, if his disciples couldn't do it, what makes it me think that Jesus can do it? Like if his name is not good enough, if he doesn't hold the authority that they can talk to them and, and cast out this demon, then what difference is Jesus going to make? You know, I wonder how many of you have doubted Jesus because of the failures of his disciples or by those who profess to be. I wonder if any of you have seen moral breakdown, you've seen sin, you've seen um, shortcomings in those who have professed faith in Christ, and that has caused you to question Jesus, right? You question his power, his sufficiency, even his presence. If there are such hypocrites, then Christianity surely can't be true. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever had a leader in the church that has fallen prey to moral failure, and you've seen the church ravaged by it? Maybe you've seen parents who professed Christ but then walked away from Him. I know that. Friends, we cannot judge Jesus based upon the weakness of His followers. He is the Son of God. And the only one who lived a perfect life and gave that life to purchase the pardon of the followers, all of whom, every single one of them, who are failures who sin, who are weak. Jesus works through his disciples, yes, but he also works in spite of them. And though every man were a liar, Jesus is true. The truth of Christianity must be judged in light of who Jesus is and why he came, not the imperfections and moral failures of his people. So if you're struggling with that today, you've got to go to Jesus, not to those people. To err is human. Right? It's sin nature built into us. Only Jesus lived the perfect life. We can only judge Christianity based upon Him. But Jesus won't let this man remain in doubt. Just like the hemorrhaging woman, Jesus is drawing out this man's faith. Okay? It started when He first replied to him, O faithless generation. He began to place a bug in this man's ear. Oh wait. Maybe I'm faithless. He adds to it in verse 23. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, many take this passage to refer to the power that you have if you believe. Like, as if you have faith, then you can do anything, right? If you have faith, then you can cast out demons. If you have faith, then you can, you know, you can heal yourself or others of illness or disability. You know, you can climb every mountain. You can ford every stream. You can follow each rainbow till you find your dream, you know, kind of a stuff. And then really that's all that it takes. Faith is somehow realizing the power that is within you. You just have to name it and claim it. Well, that's not the point of this at all. No, when Jesus says, if you can, who is the antecedent? Who is the you in that, that verb, in that sentence? It's Jesus. If Jesus can, if Jesus is able, right? I mean, Jesus is. I mean, he speaks a word and the demons flee. People are healed. Storms are calm. The dead are raised. Jesus has the power, not the one who has faith. All things are possible for the one who believes that Jesus has the power. Not that they have the power. Those who believe that He is who He says that He is. Faith is not a power in and of itself. Faith will set no limit to the power of God. This miracle is a piece of cake to Jesus. Remember, He cast a demon out of a girl. He didn't even see her. Right? The Syrophoenician woman came, asked that He do that. He just said, go home. She's fine. No big deal. It's nothing for Jesus. Drawing faith out of this man is a lot more difficult. Anyone can see a miracle and be amazed, but true faith comes not from witnessing what Jesus can do, but in identifying and truly believing in who Jesus is. Jesus is leading this man out of simply a desire for his boy to be healed to believing that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. All things are possible for those who rest in His true authority over all. Jesus is the power. He alone is able. Jesus is leading this man to cry out in faith. And that's exactly what He does. We often mistakenly think that faith is power. 
that faith is somehow self-sufficient willpower to live in moral perfection. And that's not at all what it's about. And we lie to ourselves and we lie to others. We, we present ourselves in the best possible light. You know, we try to hide or minimize our sin. We begin to blame others. We justify ourselves. We isolate ourselves. We take faith simply to be an individual effort. And all of that is wrong. In reality, faith is, is humble, open dependence upon Christ. We don't hide it. We proclaim it. We admit that faith is, our faith is not perfect, but it is mixed with unbelief. And it is influenced by the unbelief that exists in the world. If we are truly going to trust in Christ and grow in Him, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with our condition, right? And that's what I love about this man's response. It is completely raw and vulnerable. It's completely honest. In verse 24, he immediately cries out, I believe! Help my unbelief! This is one of the most honest men that I've seen Jesus come into contact with. Because he recognizes his true state. That there is a mixture of belief and unbelief. He gets it. This is a perfect expression of the reality of our faith. We live in a fallen world. A world that has been marred by sin. A life, and life is difficult. Life is hard. Life hurts. And though we believe, we still struggle in moments in this condition in failing to believe God. We've all done it. If we've been honest with ourselves at all, we know that we've done it. And the reality is we do it far more frequently than we, we dare want to, to admit. Jesus was the only person that had perfect faith. And we know that because he's the only person that lived in perfect obedience. Have you ever sinned? You still sin? I don't see enough nods in this room. Everybody should be going like this right now. We all do. Right? When we sin, we're essentially failing to believe God. At its base level, that's what it is. Or we're believing in something else more than God. Right? We're, we may be professing faith in Christ, but in that moment we're saying, you know what? I don't really know that God can satisfy me in the same way that this lust can. In the same way that this other thing can. I, I, I think that this thing ought to be first in my life. It's going to be able to satisfy me in ways that, that God can't in this moment. And so I give, I give credence to that. I believe in that more than I believe in God. And that's how we give ourselves over to sin. We're believing in it more than we are God. Sex can gratify me more than God can. You know, food can gratify me more than God can. The praise of men gratifies me more than, than standing before Jesus and, and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, like all of that stuff. That's what we're doing. Right? We're trading God, believing God, trusting God, looking at our satisfaction with God for something else, for something less, for whatever we want in that moment. But true faith recognizes just how weak it is. It understands human frailty. It, it, it acknowledges the weakness and the struggle. It places no confidence in itself, but humbly depends on God for everything. This is a must for true growth in Christ. Chris Marshall rightly identifies that self-confident optimism may feel like faith. It might. You know, if I'm feeling good about myself, I've got a, like a hunky-dory view on life, kind of Pollyanna approach, you know, but I'm really I'm confident in myself. That might seem like faith, but it's actually unbelief. It disregards the prerequisite of human powerlessness and prayerful dependence upon God. True faith takes no confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. It looks at him, the most powerful one, who stands in the place of God, whose authoritative word restores life from chaos. True faith is unconditional openness to God. It's a decision in the face that, of all to the contrary, that Jesus is able. And we must cry out in that faith. James Edwards says that the sole bridge between human frailty and the all-sufficiency of God is faith. Right? Where we are in human weakness and, and the, the complete power of God, that bridge that connects the two of us in that moment is faith. 
We don't cast out evil by faith. God does. We, like this man, must cry out, Lord, I believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. And so the Christian life doesn't exist on the mountain, but in the valley, in the midst of unbelief and fallenness and difficulty. Third, the Christian life is made evident by faith and prayer, not by ritual. Have you ever noticed that our faith is never really proven in times of blessing, but in times of adversity? Right? We really know that we're believing when times are hard and we're trusting, not when times are good, when things are going according to plan. Right? When my life is just basically working out the way I want. I've got everything that I, I could possibly need at this moment. Things are fine. And yeah, I might profess faith in Christ, but where's the testimony of it? Where's the proof? Right? Because things are good. I don't really need Him for anything. I already have everything. Now, faith is proven not in blessing, but in hardship, in difficulty, and affliction. It's when times seem hopeless that we truly demonstrate the hope that we have. And that's what happens next in verses 25 to 27. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Now apparently... The crowd got distracted by something, right? Maybe they were just kind of going and they were kind of licking the wounds of the scribes saying, hey, you get back in there. Man, you go meet him at the playground. You get him. You get him. I don't know. We just kind of encourage him on. Or maybe, uh, maybe they thought that Jesus had just kind of left and was kind of heading out. Maybe they got hungry. I don't really know. But, but regardless, they started to recognize, oh, wait, something is about to happen. And they come running together. Right? They're, they want to see what's about to happen. And so Jesus just turns and, and he rebukes this spirit. And it's here that we learn that not only is the spirit mute, but the spirit is actually deaf. The spirit cannot hear. Right? Maybe this is one of the reasons why the disciples couldn't cast him out, you know, because they couldn't hear what he was saying. They were saying, I, I don't really know. But, but this, despite not being able to hear Jesus' words, it still recognized his authority and knew what he was there to do. This exorcism wasn't dependent upon what Jesus said. Like it's some sort of incantation or mantra that he had to say in the exact way. It's not like when you come to a demon, it's like you've got to say these things and do these things and this is the procedure you have to follow in order for it to be relieved. No, it's only based upon Jesus' identity. Right? Jesus' identity was enough for this, this demon to have to flee. This demon couldn't hear a thing, but he knew who he was and he knew what what he was calling him to do. And he had to do it. He had no choice. This, this is a recognition that the power of this exorcism rests in the identity of Jesus, not in words or ritual. And in this last ditch effort, to this demon tries to take this boy's life. It cries out and it convulses him terribly and it leaves and the boy is like a corpse. Now imagine being the father in this moment. It is one thing to say that you believe when you have some hope that Jesus might be able to do something else. It's another thing when, when you've asked Jesus to do something and he hasn't done it. And you're standing there and the thing that you've sacrificed most for your entire life is lying there dead or appearing to be dead right in front of you. And I think that there's this big pause between verse 26 and 27. Jesus is waiting to see what, how he would respond. Would his faith fail? Would he, would he cry out to Jesus, Why can you save my boy? Would he become angry and indignant? Would he mourn as one without hope? What would he do? How would he respond to this situation? Jesus is waiting to see this, man's, this man evidence his faith when all hope seemed lost. It was in this moment that the man's struggling faith was confirmed. It's there that we really see, man, he gets it. You know, Jesus could have left this faithless generation right there. He did what he was asked to do. The demon's gone, right? He's not required to do anything, but he didn't. Mark tells us that he took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. Guys, this is resurrection language. Mark tells us that 
that Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he arose. And Luke adds in chapter 9 verse 43 that all were astonished at the majesty of God. The glory and majesty of God is revealed as this man held to his faith in Jesus through the adversity as Jesus raised his son from the dead. Think about this. Think about the weight of this. The glory and majesty of God are revealed not because things went according to plan and boom and it all worked out and everybody was happy and you know they lived happily ever after and all that kind of stuff. No, it was revealed in that moment as his son lay like a corpse and he says nothing against Jesus and then Jesus turns and picks him up. This kid was as if dead and he's alive and he's freed. At that It's when glory is revealed. That is majestic. That is awesome. And that can only happen through the adversity. Before that, the crowd testified to nothing. Friends, it is... That kind of faith, that kind of glory is not seen when life goes well. It's not seen when we quietly acknowledge an untried faith. As we look and act just like the unbelieving world. It's only revealed when things are hard and we stand, our, we stand apart from the world. When there's something different about us. When there is true hope. Mark continues in verses 28 through 29. And when he had entered the house His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So the disciples, they're still wondering what, what happened. What went wrong? Why were we not able to do this? We've done this before. We've cast out demons in your name. What's the deal with this one? Did we miss something in our procedure? Did we not say the right words? Did we not perform the right steps? Did we, did we just not include something? Was our process not right? Did we forget the wooden crosses and the holy water? I mean, what, what else do we need? I mean, what are we missing here? And I, I love the way that Raphael dealt with this in his painting with the one disciple looking at that book, the wisdom of the world, the incantations, the religious rituals, and he's puzzled, he's confused. He recognizes that it's insufficient. I mean, it tells a, a great story right there. That these, it's not a matter of process. It's not, faith is not following religious rituals. Now, you may be saying to yourself, wait, 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 you, you said faith, but, but Jesus mentions prayer. He doesn't mention faith. He mentions prayer. Well, Matthew adds in chapter 17, verse 20, of, of his, um, his account of this, this event. He adds, because of your little faith. And prayer is an expression of our faith. Or in this case, their prayerlessness is an indication of their faithlessness. Jesus is not saying, hey, you forgot one step in your process. You forgot to pray. You just need to add that to your process and then you're okay. Right? Okay, so just add prayer into your worship service and then you're fine. You've got the singing, you've got the word, you've got, you know, scripture reading, all that kind of stuff. You just need to add prayer or you need to make sure you add prayer into your daily quiet time, into your religious structure, into your process so that you can somehow be right. And that means faith. No. He's saying far more than that. He's saying, no, faith is is just active dependence upon God and that is expressed through prayer. He's not saying that you would be able to cast it out if you were, um, if you were relying on, I'm sorry. Um, he's saying you couldn't cast out the demon because you were relying on yourselves and treating faith as if it's simply a process. It's simply ritual. It's just something that you do. The truth is you can't do it. You must rely on God. Prayer is telling God that you need Him. That you are unable to do it yourself and you are looking to the only one who is able. That's what prayer is. right? Prayer is faith spoken to God. It testifies that spiritual power is not in myself, but in God alone. And I'm seeking Him. I'm wanting Him. I'm willing to wait for Him. A wise man once said that, that those who do not believe do not pray. This is a good functional definition of faith. 
Faith prays. Unbelief doesn't. Charles Spurgeon adds, You are no Christian if you do not pray. A a prayerless soul is a Christless soul. So let me ask you this. How's your prayer life? Or maybe I should ask you, how's your faith? When you come to God, what, what are you doing? Are you seeking Him because you need Him? Or are you just delivering your laundry list to Him? Asking for Him to give you what you want? Right? Are you seeking His will? Are you seeking His plan? Are you wanting Him? Are you wanting to commune with Him? To be with Him? To express your love and your dependence upon Him? Or are you using prayer just as a means to serve yourself? Where does your help come from? What are you seeking? Do you pray when you're alone? Or what about in groups? Are you afraid to just pipe up in prayer like when you're in community group or life transformation group or some other setting where there's other people around? I'm afraid to, to acknowledge God like that's some sort of burden and shouldn't be a delight to be able to engage and pray for others and pray for ourselves. I mean, like we should want to do that. Why is this so hard? Why is it like pulling teeth? I'd have that conversation with my community group. You know, I mean, this is a delight. Friends, we don't evidence our faith by going through religious motions. Okay? God is not honored just because you're you're thoughtlessly singing songs or your head's bobbing when some guy's long-winded and preaching to you. You know, like God's not honored in that. God's honored as you hear his word and you respond to it. And and that becomes this relationship. It becomes this paradigm. I want God. I want to know him. I want to commune with him. And I do that through prayer. I do that through expressing my faith. I can do that in evangelism. I can do that in encouraging my brother and sister in Christ. I can do that when I sing. I can do that anywhere and anytime. But that's what I want. That's what I'm going for. Our faith is evidenced in our desire for communion with God. And it is through our intentional communing communing with God that even when we don't feel like it, that our faith grows. And if you're wondering where you're at right now in your faith and why you're not really growing, my, my question to you is like, are you waiting till you feel like it? Or are you saying, I know this to be true. I believe, help my unbelief. And so I'm going to seek you out. I'm going to walk in it. I'm going to do it even when I don't feel like it. Because I know that this is your plan for me. We live in a valley in the midst of unbelief. Life is hard and people are hurting. Are you going to rely upon yourself or think that that you'll arise to glory simply by following religious procedure? Or will you seek the face of God? Are you going to try to go it alone like some kind of superhero, like you've got it all together and continue to lie to yourself and to other people that your life is fine? Are you going to be open and honest and vulnerable about your true state and say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. And God, help me to be that to other people. Help me, help me to steer others towards you in the same way. Are we going to come together and not just go through the motions or seek mountaintop experiences, closing our eyes, drawing that circle around ourselves? And are we going to proclaim with one voice the excellencies of Christ? to declare our humble and utter dependence upon Him through faith and through prayer. That is what God wants. That is what He's honored in. That's where Christ is exalted. Let us not be a foolish and faithless generation. Let's together seek and savor the One who is able. Let's pray together. Father God, we we pray that, that we would not ignore this passage that we would realize how immediately pressing it is to us. God, we, we know that the world is chaotic. And we know that life is hard. And we know that there's pain and suffering and heartache and brokenness and loss in our lives and in the lives of those who are sitting next to us. God, I pray that we would not focus on ourselves and treat Christianity as if it's a means to gain for ourselves, but that we would truly recognize who Jesus is and why He came, and that we would follow Him. 
that we would want him, that we would love him, that we would seek after him, that this would be real to us and that we would struggle with it, even in the midst of that unbelief that still plagues us. God, I pray that you would help us to to be uh, truth speakers and, and lovers of one another as Jesus has loved us and spoken truth to us. May we be that to other people and be a means of redemption, of bringing light to darkness, of bringing order to chaos, to bring peace to misery. God, that is what you have set us apart and called us to do, and I pray that we would embrace it. God, help us to live by faith, not in perpetual unbelief. And may that be evidenced more than anything in our life of prayer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.